Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, would you open our ears in this moment that we would hear? Would you open our eyes so that we would see and behold the wonderful things you have here for us in your scripture? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John Gasty, he had come to the U.S. Uh, from Liverpool, uh, Britain. Um, he had come over here to be a missionary, of all places, to the United States. And so he's come to uh, Philadelphia, and he decides, I need to understand this culture that I am trying to be a missionary to. And so what better way than to go to our antique shops? Because if you can peruse through the antique shops, you get a little fuel for the types of things that we purchase and what has been important to us. And John, as he's looking up there at this wall on in the antique shop, he's reading these various signs, very American, uh, that, that say things like, don't tread on me, you know. Uh, some of you probably have that in your, in your homes. Or uh, a sign that says, here's a great one, no taxation without representation, right? Um, and then he comes across this one sign that makes him raise his eyebrow. It says, we serve no sovereign here. So, you mean, how am I supposed to minister to these people? I, I, I've come with a message about a sovereign king who has come. And embedded in these people's very fabric and DNA is that there is no sovereign king. Uh, How is it that I can possibly minister to them? And we think, is this just an American issue? No. As we're reading here in the Gospel of Mark, this is not an American thing. This is man's problem. That we say, God Who do you think you are to tell us the ways of the world? Who do you think you are to tell us how to live or what the nature of reality is? To which I would respond, well, friends, it is one thing to say, no sovereign King James or no sovereign King George, but it's a whole nother thing if you say no sovereign King Jesus. The book of Mark that we've been opening up with here is showing us that man, this man, Jesus, is truly man, but he's also truly so much more. He, he can miraculously heal. 
He can know your very thoughts right here in this room in this moment. He has the ability to control the spiritual darkness and the demonic realm. And we see that he comes as a king to tell us where the king is. The kingdom is at hand. Much like King Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, slowly revealing that he is this promised king. And Jesus has been slowly but surely revealing to us, not just any king, he is the sovereign king. And for this, there has been some great pushback. Not all will agree with this declaration. Friends recall that the messianic expectation of the kingdom was that it would be outward, that it would be external, that it would be revealed, it would come in power, that it would be inclusive of the elite. And most importantly to these leaders, the spiritual leaders of the day, it would, it would embrace and wrap its arms around all that they had been doing and saying. But Jesus, the king, will show us now through these parables that the kingdom is not like that. Further, in judgment, he's going to conceal the kingdom from those who stand opposed to him. And so in today's passage, we will see first the parables and their purpose. And then we'll conclude with a little bit longer section looking at these parables and their meaning. So first, the parables and their purpose. Recall from last week that the crowds had been pushing in around Jesus and and that he had this confrontation, uh, both with his family and with the scribes we read. And now the scene shifts as Jesus is in a boat. And you could picture the scene. He pushes himself off from the boat away from the shore where the people are lined up. They can hear him, but at least they're not crowding in to try and touch him in hopes then that they will actually stop and listen to his teaching, his message. And so he begins to teach them. It's not in plain, direct speech as I'm speaking to you now. He begins to teach them with parables. We might think of parables as earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Parables, friends, they're a bit, it's a bit like beef jerky. Uh, this is not something you just choke down. You, you must chew on it for a while. That, that's the point. You must break it down and mull over and think about it, the depths of what is being said. Um, it, not just on a mental level. These, these truths in parables need to sink down into our hearts. And so Jesus opens up here with this parable. It's a farming parable. A sower goes out to sow and he throws some seed out. It, it has been said this farmer here might be the worst farmer you've ever heard of. Um, I, I don't know about you, but when, I'm, when I've grown some tomatoes, award-winning, beautiful heritage tomatoes. I mean, just amazing. They're like a steak in themselves. But when I grow them, I mean, I'm getting cups. I've got the soil mo- moisture just right, the nutrients in there. I'm grabbing a tweezers. I'm taking a seed, and I'm carefully placing it just the right amount of centimeters below the soil. And, and it's right in the window, covered. It, everything is perfect. This farmer here... He's awful. He just goes down there, just taking seed, throwing it here, throwing it there. And some lands on the path and others in good soil. And you think, what is he doing? Well, a little historical background tells us, while it was common to plow the ground and properly place seeds in particular areas, it was also common to have fields where you would have these skinny little paths that would go out. And so as a farmer, you would just go and, and begin to toss some. And inevitably, when you did this, What happened to the seed? Well, some fell in places like along the path where a bird might just come and pluck it up. Others found, and of course, there will be a weed patch here and there. And if a seed bounces and lands there, it has very little hope. And another seed, of course, would fall where the the soil might be tougher and rockier. 
it never takes root uh, well. Or if it does and springs up, it's quickly scorched and withered. And then there would be some seed that would land in good soil and produce a crop. Jesus says all this and he says, he who has ears, let him hear. It's almost as if he kind of crosses his arms and says, if you get it, then you get it. Now, the problem was they didn't get it. Uh, Later, when many in the crowd had left, some hung back with the 12. And they're thinking, hey, Jesus, remember that parable, the one that was really weird about the sower? You you know, and he goes out and some seed is, you know, destroyed and some does well. We've been chewing on that one. We've been trying to think that one through. (laughs) Help us understand here. So Jesus says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Hold on. (laughs) Jesus, you mean you purposely want these people to not understand what you are trying to tell them? Well, catch first. You see how in your Bibles here that these words are indented in just a little bit? See how they're moved in, and you may even have a footnote or a a letter there that will tell you this is a quotation that comes from Isaiah chapter 6. And because the house of Israel had become so wicked, God was going to destroy his relationship with his own people. It was in the middle of that context that Isaiah is commissioned and called to go preach to the people. Isaiah says, okay, Lord, what, what is it you want me to go tell them? Tell them this, Isaiah. Tell them Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, if you spend a little time drilling down on Isaiah chapter 6, all of a sudden you begin to see what's going on. It's very clear there that the people are becoming what they worship. We have a saying, you are what you eat. And God says, you are what you worship. You become what you worship. Uh, So in Isaiah's day, the people had these little carved idols, these little literal statues. And these little statues had heads, they had ears, they had eyes and mouths and and minds or brains. But but the whole point there, being that these people worship these little statues, and being that people become like what they worship... Well, he says, you'll be like those little statues. You'll have ears, but you won't really hear. Oh, you'll have eyes. Yep, yep, You, but you can't see a thing. You might have minds, but you will not comprehend any of this. And so Isaiah in judgment essentially goes on and says, go on, be deaf, be blind, remain hardened to the God who lives, who could actually save you. And Jesus here, Taking from Isaiah 6, bringing this in as he's teaching in parables, says, here you go. This is you. Don't forget last week's passage in chapter 3. His own family were saying that he was out of his mind. The religious leaders were saying that he was in cahoots with Satan. We also read in verse 6 of chapter 3 where the the scribes, they went out and, and gathered with the Herodians and plotted how they might destroy Jesus. And so this judgment coming from Jesus, maybe it's a bit shocking to our modern ears. Maybe it's a bit difficult for us to wrestle with, but it does not come in a vacuum. This is judgment on a people who began to worship everything but the living God. 
In Isaiah 6, God, who is presented as king, gives the message so that the people would actually hear. But they don't listen to King Yahweh or acknowledge him. And here too, King Jesus speaks, but they call him crazy. They call him demonized. And Jesus says, if you'd rather be like the idols that you worship, you won't understand. You will not comprehend the kingdom. It will go right over your head. What idols were these religious leaders worshiping? Well, as we've seen, and we will see further as we continue through the gospel of Mark, it becomes very clear. These religious leaders, they really, really worship the religious system. They, they, they begin to put so much stock in merely checking the box that their hearts become far from loving God and far from actually caring about their neighbors. For example, as even as we've seen in the name of the Sabbath, they would let someone remain in pain and suffering rather than bandage them up or heal them or care for them, lest they be uh, charged with working on the Sabbath. Uh, imagine that your your wife is in labor in the back of the car and you're driving down the road and she says, the baby's coming soon, step on it. And, and you say, I'm a good citizen, I'm going to drive 45 in the 45, I'm not going one mile an hour over. Because I so love the law. The wife would say, well, you might love the law, but do you love me? (laughs) And it is in that sense that the, the, the backdrop here, the judgment of these parables come over those who refuse to see, who refuse to repent. I think the difference between Isaiah's time and Jesus's moment here, though, in Mark 4, is that while many of the leaders were blind and deaf and unwilling to be challenged, it was not the case with all of them. Uh, this may have stood even as a warning to, to Jesus' own family who stood off afar and maybe heard some of this. While they stiff-arm him for the moment it, it, and remain as outsiders, th- there's hope that they will soften and hear and believe. Key to this tough section is for us to recognize that if the king has come and you do not welcome him, you will not be welcome to perceive, to understand, or rejoice in the secrets of the kingdom. And it is for this reason that the parables will affect the hearers of them in two different ways. Those who've already hardened their hearts against God, it will come upon them as judgment. And for those who have open hearts to the gospel and to God, the parables will help them to actually understand the deeper truths of God in memorable ways. And then we now come to our longer section. We've been looking at the parables and their purpose. And now we're going to look at these particular parables and their meaning. What we see uh, now is for those who stick with Jesus, they become insiders. There becomes a, a parting of ways here where a particular group begins to understand and be on track with Jesus more and more. And then there'll be those who are driven further and further apart from, from Jesus. And what we have is as they become insiders, they will have the, the secrets of the kingdom revealed to them. And we see this then in verses 13 through 20. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will then you not understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. They, When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a while And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
And others are ones that are sown along the thorns. They are those who hear the word. And, but the cares of the world and the deceitful riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke out the word. It proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is almost a parable, if you will, on receiving parables. Note here in verse 13, it seems as even if the disciples at this point, they don't have hearts yet that fully get it. Um, the, the seed itself has nothing wrong with it. It's always uh, the soil that has the, the issue to produce the fruit. So the issue is, as Jesus is showing us, with the soil. The seed being the word of the Lord, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And as it's planted, the various places where it's been planted will determine whether it springs up or not. And yet, as soon as this word is announced here, we see Satan will pluck it from some people. They are the soil, the seeds that have landed on the path where the birds would quickly swoop in and grab it up. And we find that uh, they are uh, unable to, to have the seed take root at all. Have you ever had multiple conversations with someone about the gospel? Have you had times where you spoke to them one week and you thought, maybe they're getting it. Maybe they're really understanding for the first time this gospel. But then just fast forward a little bit. The next week you're having a conversation with them again. And it's as if it's as if nothing really stuck. They weren't really getting it. They were circling back to saying, oh, yeah, yeah I get it. Be a good person. You're like, no, 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 no. You need to be forgiven for being a wicked person. No, oh, okay, I, I get it. Uh, just, just do right and be a little night. And you're constantly saying, you're not really grasping the truth of the gospel here. The penny has not dropped for them, which is why for us, we know it often takes multiple exposures to the gospel from several different angles before it really sinks in deep. Why? Because there is an enemy who wants to swoop in always and pluck it straight out of your heart the moment it gets planted. Now, still others, they represent the soil of the rocky ground. Uh, They are those where the word springs to life very quickly and then it very quickly dissipates. I recall um, growing up in a, in a youth group situation where I, there was a gangster who had shown up, come to Jesus, seemingly come to Jesus, and then just as quickly as he was cu- trying to become a leader in the group and he was getting very, very zealous, it was just as quickly that he said, you're all a bunch of hypocrites, peace out. And he went back due to pressure from his former life to go back to the gangs and the drugs and the violent life. Because the soil was rocky, the seeds sprouted quickly. But then because there was no deep root in it, sadly, it quickly faded. And then we look here uh, briefly at this third soil. This is the one that I particularly fear the most. The soil that has weeds embedded in it. So that the good seed can take root. And it even is growing up and doing really well. And yet the cares of the world... The deceitfulness of riches and the desires for things of the world begin to choke out this seed. I particularly wonder if this is a strategy that the enemy uses the most in a church like ours. Um, I find myself, I'm far often way too busy. I'm thinking of the last couple of weeks where I realized I need to get my taxes done. I have to get the brakes done on my vehicle. I need to get them swapped out. I have a, a, a home repairs that need to be done. I have an email sitting in my inbox that's there forever. I need to reply to. 
Um, I, I have a needing I need to prepare for. I have children that need to be hauled back and forth. I have shopping that's overdue. I have a dog that needs to be walked in times a day. I have a pile of paperwork on my desk at home. I have a mom and dad that are waiting for me to call them and have a long conversation with them. And, and I have a picture frame on my wall that's crooked. I need to pull out a nail and move it up so it's just right. I have a song that I've been waiting to learn on my guitar. To quote Princess Bride, I have a wedding to plan, a wife to murder, and Gilder to frame for it. I'm swamped. <laughs> and it's right there that the cares of this world can choke out the word of God in my life. While I am busy checking all the boxes, God's message can be, not doesn't have to be, but can be slowly losing its amazing power in my life to cause fruit. And this is why I rejoice when I look and know, at least we see there is a next soil here, this last soil, the good soil. Now, I'm not uh, convinced that the amount of fruit here that Jesus references, the 30-fold, the 60-fold, the 100-fold, that we're supposed to to make some sort of special number uh, about this or have some sort of formula. I just think the point might be that, hey, as the good seed lands in the fruitful soil out here, there'll be some, it'll be 30, 60, 20. I mean, it's just going to be, it just, whatever God's grace in this supplies to you, some will be more fruitful than others. But there will be fruit. It will come about in our lives this way. And amazingly here in this last category, notice how simple this whole thing is. We make Christianity far too complicated at times. Look at how easy it is. They're just simply those who hear and accept it. This good soil, they hear the word and they accept it. It's not overly complicated. They hear the truth of the gospel They hear the truth of God's word. They say in their hearts, yes, this is true. This is right. And they go about a fruitful life. It's not that complicated. And so then we come to this hard truth, but an important truth. This parable is basic to understanding all the others. Everything will hinge on how you receive Jesus and his teaching. And I'm well aware there are some Sundays here where where some of you here will hear what I am saying And yet not really hear what I am saying. So what's my temptation? I get a little louder. What's my temptation? I grip the pulpit even tighter. I tell a funny joke, another funny joke. Still, it goes over sometimes. None of this will do. None of this will actually bring the deeper truths of God to bear on your heart. Sometimes the best thing I or other preachers can do is just simply state the truth and pray that the Spirit would bring that to rest in your hearts and that you would believe it. I, don't be surprised then that hearts that are soft here, as we're seeing out of this, will grow softer to the gospel, while hearts that are hard will grow harder. And I really want you to hear this part, that the gospel has always had and functioned as a softening and hardening aspect to it. Uh, you think just as the sun, it's the sun that will bake the clay and harden the clay. That exact same sun will be the sun that softens the wax and melts it. And, and, and so this is why, uh, you know, we, we see therefore a, some who may, you know, they're hearing the gospel and they're just sort of backing away in their hearts. Maybe, uh, they're just slowly hardening themselves to the truth of the gospel. Because they, they do not, it's not really taken root. While others will be slowly coming closer and closer to Christ because they are melting in it. And this is where I would say to you, if you sense in your heart that you are growing apathetic to the gospel, 
This is an alarm bell going off in your heart, in your mind right now. And I would call for you to pray this older but still very relevant song. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me. Mold me. Fill me. Use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. And all of you here who find yourself as hardened clay, ask and pray that the Lord would turn your heart here into melted wax before him. Do you think in your in the back of your mind, do you think that he doesn't want to do that? Friends, it's his very heart's desire to turn clay into wax, to melt you before him. And believe. Believe what you ask. Well, first believe, as we'll see in these parables, that Jesus is the light as he says he is the light. Believe as these parables reveal to us that, that, that he will give us his word, the seed that will bear fruit in our lives. Where maybe there's only been death, but now life is springing. And believe also that as we see in the beginning of this gospel and at the end of this gospel, that Jesus has come as the son of God to die in the place of man. So that those who like these inner disciples here who stick with Jesus and give their lives to be his disciples, they will receive eternal fruit forever. And some of us, we will bear eh, 30, 60, 100 fold in our fruit. Now we're going to look at several parables that cover verses 21 through 34, and we will briefly spend time in each, um, importantly, under, adding to our understanding of the kingdom. Look at verses 21 through 23 with me. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. Interestingly enough here, this word brought for lamp is, uh, I, I believe our English translations are trying to smooth over. The word literally is come. But lamps don't come on their own accord. Uh, but Jesus being the, the, the lamp here, he has come. And, and he has come to bring us this light. Uh, what, what we see here in this moment of the gospel is that this light is concealed. That, that's part of these parables. It's a concealing light. He is light, but it is concealed. There will come a time, though, in which this light, in which this um, truth will be made fully manifest, and it will come. Then in verses 24 through 25, we show us that, the, that for this light uh, is for those who have an open heart to receive it. Not all will receive this light. So even the little glimpse of light they get, they, they might have it taken away from them. Uh, We might say those who have a self-reliance will eventually lose everything we have. To which we respond, if that's the case, okay, Jesus, if this is the case, when will this light shine so bright that the world cannot ignore it? And he responds in verses 26 through 34, essentially saying, it won't be like that. Uh, This is going to be a slow fade up. This is not going to be, the kingdom of God is not a bomb, a nuclear bomb that is dropped with a very fast explosion. Uh, you know, when you go to the movie theaters and the TH, is it THX? The, the, uh, sound begins to get louder as they're testing and making sure. And when it starts off, it's very quiet. You hardly notice it. And oh, yeah, now the time's coming where they're doing the sound check. And eventually it gets so loud that the kids in the movie theater, of course, are covering their ears, right? And the kingdom of God is more like that. It starts off very faint. You can hardly recognize there's a sound coming, but eventually, The kingdom of God grows louder and louder until it cannot be ignored. 
Look at 26 through 34 with me here where he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And then we see in 30, he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or in what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes a larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that even the the birds of the air make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Friends, the the imagery we get here from these uh, parables is that the farmer does this labor. The farmer scatters the seed, but the farmer does not actually cause the growth. Uh, Have you considered that? The the growth is the, the work of God. And therefore, in everything we do as farmers, if you will, we cannot actually force the growth. We cannot fabricate it. We cannot artificially inject it. It is all a work of God, which means that you and I, we just throw the seed out there. We just throw it out. Some will bloom, others sadly will not. And here we think of Jesus saying, the wind will blow where it wishes and and bring some to life, as John 3 tells us. And so I remind us, even as I remind myself, that the temptation to coerce people or to succumb to worldly ways of getting people in the door will not actually do our church any good. It would be far, far better if there was just 10 people here who were fruitful, growing for the Lord, then 10,000 who just on the surface, on the, on the outward appearance appeared to be growing, but were truly not. So in line with the smallness, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. Uh, it's not a big roaring lion, but a simple little seed. When it's planted, no one even considers it. No one even pays attention to it. But then it continues to grow. And it continues to grow. And eventually you cannot miss it. It becomes so large that you take comfort under its shade. You look up and you hear the birds uh, in, the, in the nest up above you in this large tree. This whole passage here, friends, challenges how it is that we are to grow, to flourish, to thrive, to get life, to get eternal life. It's never by means of outward, flesh-driven living. It's always humble. It's always modest. It grows slowly. It's hidden. And if I can simply point out how this might practically apply in our context, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but the church on the mountain, it's not called the church in the city. Um, we're rural. We're smaller, fewer perhaps, slower perhaps. Maybe you could say humble. We do not have all the resources and numbers that the larger church down the road might have. There's no lasers. There's no colored lights. There's no fancy band set up. There's no polished preacher. There's no camera set up. I think it's right there that we see and value our smallness. I think it'd be easy to view us perhaps as insignificant compared to other churches, but I want you to know that God here values smallness. He values humble, small churches. Pictured in the kingdom is the smallness of it. It begins small as a mustard seed. Stephen Whitmere says, the kingdom of, think of the kingdom of God this way. While everybody is out looking for lightning, the kingdom comes as a lightning bug. While our culture thrives on big, flashy, the gospel celebrates small growth. 
Sure growth, slow growth, yes, small growth. Jesus started with a small band of 12, not 12,000. Jesus sent them out into small towns like ours here in Welches to do the slow, plodding work of sharing the gospel, just as he does with us. Church, if we join him in this mustard seed work, I sit there and I ponder what God might do with our church in the next five or ten years. What if we threw the seed out there? What if we're unsure where the seed is landing, like the farmer, you're just throwing it out, and you know something's going to land on good soil. Much of it will land on the path and in the weeds or on the rocky soil. But what if we kept throwing out the gospel, recasting it to those we're not sure if they will ever get it? And what if meanwhile we do a work of casting away our idols that will blind our eyes and deafen our ears to the word of God? What if our deep hope was not in technology or doctors or in entertainment, but in the living word, which bears fruit in us? What if the little that we have is added to so that we start small, but we have more and more added to us, more biblical understanding, more discipleship, more impact in our community? What if we saw more elders coming on? What if we saw more, de- more deacons coming on? What if more people moved in our church body from a simple understanding of God's word and grow in teaching it to the point that they are proclaiming it themselves to others? What if our church was like a little mustard seed here in Welch's that will not give up, will not give in, but will continue to grow to be a place where people here on the mountain will come and say, ah, this is the place where the shade is. This is the place where I can refresh myself in the living waters. This is the place where the people love me unconditionally. Yes, I have a past. They have a past. But they love me and welcome me in. What if this was a place that the birds of the air nested themselves, growing deeper and deeper with God? Church, it is my prayer that that is exactly what we would do. Would you pray with me right now? Father, we ask for a renewing work in our church. We ask that you will never let us grow complacent, that you will never let us succumb to outward ways of growing in the kingdom. Lord, we, we pray that you would prevent us from hardening our hearts. Lord, would you continue to melt us before you, that we would always find the truth of the good news enjoyable to our ears and our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.